The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, from back when sneaky, unexpected attacks came from the rumble of warplanes on the horizon at dawn. In that sense, even a sneak attack could be seen coming, if only in the final seconds. Not today. Do you remember that news story from a couple of years ago about American diplomats falling mysteriously ill in Cuba? It wasn't just Havana. The same symptoms manifested themselves at at least one U.S. consulate in China. All these diplomats fell ill at the same time with the same symptoms. Dizziness, unsteadiness, pressure in the head, impairments in vision and hearing. Many of those stricken are not fully recovered today. Now, a new study from the National Academy of Sciences finds that the symptoms are consistent with the effects of radiation from directed microwave energy. The study is silent on whether this directed microwave energy was intentionally aimed at its victims, but it's uh, interesting that it only seems to affect American diplomats serving in communist countries. China is not as other nations, by which I mean even former fellow communist nations such as Russia or the Warsaw Pact. It uses all elements of national power very effectively, economic, cultural, diplomatic, and it is unrestrained by the norms of state-to-state relations. We don't use all elements of national power. We think wars are won with weapons. So we do shock and awe for three days and then a long, slow, pointless bleed over two decades. Headline from the American Bible of Swampy Conventional Wisdom, Foreign Policy Magazine, November 6th, 2020. Why Trump will blame Beijing for a Biden victory. Well, here we are a month later, and Trump has not blamed Beijing for Biden's victory. But on the other hand, Chinese foreign ministry officials have begun bragging about Biden's victory. And why wouldn't they? From the BBC, quote, Chinese agents have stepped up their efforts to influence President-elect Joe Biden's incoming administration, a U.S. intelligence official has said, unquote. And Joe's kind of susceptible to that. He's a transactional politician shallow and boastful and so out of it that in the 2020 debates he was showing off about all the great deals he was able to do with old-school segregationist Democrats back in the 70s. He's on tape bragging that he threatened to withhold U.S. aid unless the Ukrainians fired a prosecutor he disliked. If you recall Tony Bobolinsky the Biden family's business partner in some of their Chinese ventures, the fellow explaining all those emails uh, from Joe's corrupt son, Hunter, and Joe's amoral brother, Jim, about keeping 10% for the big guy and the like. The very minimum that can be deduced from Hunter Biden's laptop is that whatever the dirt we've seen on Joe, Chairman Xi has a lot more and intends to leverage that. What were those symptoms again? Dizziness, unsteadiness, pressure in the head, impairments in vision and hearing. 
I've had all of those this last month. Reality is out there somewhere, but as in a funhouse mirror, it's all weird and distorted and uh, all but unrecognisable. A week from today, the Electoral College will meet. Barring any deus ex machina from this or that courthouse, which is increasingly unlikely, even before you factor in that in these final crucial days, the head of the president's legal team is now in hospital with Chicom 19. We were told first... Uh, by Trump's own officials that this was the most secure election in US history. Then we were told that there was no evidence of fraud. Evidence. And then the story subtly evolved that there was no evidence of fraud sufficient to change the result. There is video from multiple states of Republican poll watchers being excluded from the count, but no American networks will air it. Did you get that? Quote, we want all the Republican challengers out of this room, unquote. That's election night in Detroit, where the votes are counted only by Democrats until that state has slipped into Biden's column, at which point the counting ceases. We want all the Republican challengers out of this room, unquote. That's the sound of a one-party state. It's nominally a two-party state, but the guys running the count are working more or less openly for one of those parties. And they cheer as the other party is evicted from the room. A uh, majority inspector threatened to slap me in the face. If you're telling us to leave, we will leave. Yes. Okay. Sergeant, we will leave. Okay. They let us in. They will not let us in. Now they put a cardboard over the window. They put cardboard over the windows? Those scenes are literally unimaginable in almost any other Western country, in Scandinavia, the Netherlands, in Switzerland. Were they to occur on video in Canada or elsewhere in Her Majesty's dominions, the chief electoral officer would send in the Mounties or their equivalent to secure the paper ballots and have them counted elsewhere. By now, if necessary, a rerun election would have been held. If you had as much fraud on video as you have here in multiple places, a fast-track royal commission would have been appointed. Not like the joke Durham report that will be coming to us uh, next year, next decade, whenever, but one with a fixed deadline. And if necessary, a caretaker government would stay in place until the question was resolved. But here, all the much-vaunted checks and balances do not check and balance, but become instead a chokehold, day by day throttling ever tighter the possibility that anything will be done about A, this specific fraud, or B, fraud in general, for all the elections to come, starting with the Senate runoff. Rush was back on the radio on Friday, and many of you will have heard him say we need 10 days of bombshells. Well, that was three days ago, so now it's only seven days of bombshells. He says 74 million Americans voted for Trump, and we need 10% of them, that's to say 7.5 million, to show up in Washington and protest. I agree. I agree. That would be a great day uh, if... Seven and a half million were to turn up and protest as the Electoral College meets. 
But the Republican Party is the party of battered wives, isn't it? Oh, gee, he didn't really do anything. And even if he did, he says he won't do it again. Well, OK, maybe he'll do it in Georgia, but not after that. And I need to stay for the sake of the kids and the filibuster and the Supreme Court. Have you ever seen anything more demoralising than those two Georgia Senate debates on Sunday. In the first debate, the Republican, this guy uh, Perdue, didn't bother showing up. In the second debate, the Republican did show up, uh, but you might have wished uh, that she hadn't. Glassy-eyed, fixed smile, robotically regurgitating the same old lines. I grew up on a farm. Yeah, great, great, great. She and her husband have a billion bucks. How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Goldman Sachs? That performance was everything I loathe about American politics. Just the fakey, fakey, fakeness of a fake bot staying robotically on message, and the message is totally insipid. And everything Donald Trump was the antithesis of and the antidote to. Um, I declined the opportunity to interview her a couple of weeks back because, uh, you know, she would have pre-recorded her answers last year and mailed them in like early ballots. Uh, what's your position on China, Senator? Well, I grew up on a farm. She's crap and we all know it. Purdue's crap and we all know it. You can't beat something with nothing. That's one of the oldest of political axioms. You can't beat something with nothing. But because the Democrats something... Chuck Schumer, statehood for D.C., amnesty for millions of illegal aliens. That's one hell of a something. And because the Democrats something is so ghastly, uh, the GOP base is left with no choice but trying to beat something with nothing, with these two awful Republican nothings that have to be dragged across the finish line because otherwise the abyss awaits. The GOP base. The uh, majority inspector threatened to slap me in the face. The GOP leadership. I was born and raised on a farm. I grew up working in the fields. Don't get mad, get even more stupid. Would it be too much in a nation of 350 million people to find 50 Republican senators who could talk like actual human beings? Oh, speaking of which, here's two guys agreeing on the substantive question uh, of their discussion, that we should all wear masks until the end of time or the Chinese EMP attack, whichever comes first. Uh, Alex Azar, the Trump administration's Health and Human Services Secretary, was being interviewed about masks by Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday. As I said, these two guys are in agreement. But one of them commits a ghastly error of protocol. If President Trump had worn a mask then and urged everyone to wear a mask then, back in April, the way Joe Biden is right now, wouldn't we be in much better shape? Well, Chris, I, I, I welcome Vice President Biden to the club. Since the middle of April, the president's guidelines for reopening have called well, for wearing president masks. Elect, sir. The president has called the president, the president has the president has called mass patriotic acts. Every one of his top advisors, we are out there saying, wear your mask. We talk about the data. You know, Chris, at one meter, if two people wear the mask, it can reduce viral transmission by 72 percent, protecting both the source and the recipient. We've got the data. Mass work. We encourage people, please wear a mask when you can't engage in social distancing. 
but, but first of all, it's, it's the president-elect Joe Biden, Secretary Azar. And secondly, the fact is the president said on the first Just day, for April once, 30, wouldn't you like to see a Republican return the ball and smash it down the other guy's gullet? Wouldn't you like him to say, oh, sorry, Chris, I thought we were talking about a life and death issue here. I didn't realize we were having mock tea at the palace classes at whichever Swiss finishing school you're running. But just for the record, I shouldn't have called Biden the vice president because he isn't. And I'm certainly not going to call him the president-elect, and not just because I don't recall anything in the U.S. Constitution about presidents being elected by votes produced from suitcases kept under the table until the Republicans have gone home for the night, but because converting office, or in the case of president-elect non-office, converting office into titles is unbecoming to any real republic. It'd be better to have honest, upfront marquises and viscounts running around than prostrating oneself before Mr. President-elect. There is no such title as president-elect, and given that 80% of the actual president's voters think the so-called president-elect was not actually elected, What's with your big bullying, Chris, to get me to sign on to something I do not believe? A decorum thug ought to be a contradiction in terms, but apparently not to you, Chris. Unbelievable. Perhaps Chris Wallace should just have a policy of cutting the mic of anyone who refuses to say, oh, President-elect, well, President-elect Biden, President-elect... Perhaps the entire network should cut the mics of anyone who refuses to say, oh, President-elect Biden. It's all accelerating very fast. The Chinese coronavirus enabled a lot of this because it suspended normality. Initially for 15 days to flatten the curve and then for 15 months to flatten everything. I said to one of my guests when I was in for Tucker the other week that I was beginning to get the sense that millions and millions of people were starting to forget how life used to be pre-COVID. It was an unbidden thought and one worthy of uh, fuller consideration, but it is now December And there are millions and millions of families who have been prevented from seeing their elderly grandparents for nine months. And say at this time last year, just before Christmas 2019, uh, that would have seemed odd if you had proposed it to the Western world as a permanent state of affairs. Here is a lady standing outside the window of a care home in England, looking at her mother through the glass and communicating with her quote-unquote carer via telephone. She has not held her mother for most of 2020, and she's concerned about how the frail, wheelchair-bound lady looks. Right, well, can I, can I tell you, for the record, that her colour is very poor. You know, she's, she's quite blue around the lips, and her breathing is, is quite fast, and that's, to me, that is a, a cause for concern. Well, I know, but you never do have concerns for her. Do you know, with respect, you you don't. You know, you. I, I understand you're doing your best, but you know, I can see that my mother is not well just by looking at her through the through the window. Well, what do you mean I ring up on Monday morning? That's two whole days away. Well, I'm, like I say, I'm not the manager. So You're not I'm the manager, but I mean, I'm I'm reporting. I'm Hang on a minute, just a minute okay. before you go. I am, um, I am asking you. I am. Um, I want this document. Hang on a minute. Don't take. 
and the quote-unquote carers just wheel the old lady away and lower the blinds on the daughter waiting outside. As you know, we have a uh, Brit Wanker Copper of the Day department on this show. We might have to start a Brit Carer of the Day feature. People often wondered during the Cold War how relatively sophisticated peoples in Hungary and East Germany and Czechoslovakia could live under totalitarian regimes. The truth is, unless you're a dissident playwright or political activist, going along with it can be, if not quite painless, bearable. You don't have free and fair elections, but you get up, you go to work, you come home, You have the consolations of family and friends, of warmth and conviviality. Well, America no longer has free and fair elections, so that's that. But most totalitarian states do not forbid you from holding your aged mother for a year unless she's a political prisoner. We are inaugurating entirely new forms of cold, heartless state barbarism, exemplified by the grotesque spectacle of old people cut off from their families by a wall of glass, as if it's visiting time in prison or feeding time at the zoo. At this point, I was going to play you the new anti-lockdown song by Van Morrison and Eric Clapton, Stand and Deliver. It was released worldwide on Friday morning, And by Friday afternoon, it was uh, disappeared worldwide, permanently deleted from YouTube and iTunes and Amazon. And two icons of supposedly transgressive rock and roll got the worst notices of their lives because for once they had been truly transgressive and thus had to be instantly vaporised by the woke Starpo. And some of us, maybe just a few, are left standing outside the window saying, no, no, please, please don't wheel Van and Clapper away. Don't, don't lower the blinds. I'd love to hear the new song. Please, just a few bars, please. With reality's turn to the dark and dystopic, it's time for a cheery escape. Mark Stein's newest tale for our time is P.G. Woodhouse's Smith, journalist. For a respite from the woes of the 2020 world, tune in nightly as Mark recounts the tales of a Shropshire chap turned New York publisher forced to navigate the city's underworld, with several laughs along the way. Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time are available exclusively to members of the Mark Stein Club. Listen to this latest tale or the whole back catalogue by going to www.steinonline.com. The Mark Stein Club presents... The Hundred Years Ago Show. The man with the hook, the man with the Nobel Peace Prize, and the man who wants you to win one for the Gipper. It's December 1920. A hundred years from today. Your world news update. The messy aftermath of the Great War continues. A bomb placed outside the Romanian Senate exploded with terrifying force and killed the kingdom's minister of justice and two senators and badly wounded the president of the senate. The perpetrator is said to be Max Goldstein, or as he is known to the police, the man with the hook. 
because he has lost one of his hands, presumably during an earlier bombing or while experimenting with bombs. The House of Habsburg ruled Austria for two-thirds of a millennium since the year 1276, but no more. Michael Hainish, a Fabian and a lawyer by training, has been sworn into office as the first man to bear the title President of Austria. The House of Lords has passed an amended version of the Government of Ireland bill and sent it back for approval by the House of Commons. This is the very first time their Lordship's House has ever passed a bill for Irish home rule. But events may be accelerating past the point of peaceful resolution. The Prime Minister, Lloyd George, has used the new Restoration of Order Act to proclaim martial law in the counties of Cork, Limerick, Tipperary and Kerry. That said, Mr Lloyd George says he remains open to working with all Sinn Féin members of Parliament except those charged with serious crimes. Sinn Féin, on the other hand, have ambushed two trucks of military police and killed three policemen. Irish unionists have responded by burning down City Hall in Cork. In the hall of the Norwegian king, there was no Nobel Peace Prize winner to receive his award. This year's Peace Prize has gone to the American president, Woodrow Wilson, for his tireless work as founder of the League of Nations. His medal, however, was accepted in Christiana, the capital of Norway, by the US minister to that country. Mr Wilson was unable to travel to the ceremony because of ill health. In other news of the global commons, the world now has a world court. The League of Nations General Assembly in Geneva has voted to set up a court of truly universal jurisdiction, uh, but the compromise required to pass the treaty decrees that both parties in any dispute have to submit to its jurisdiction and that there is no penalty for non-compliance with its decisions. 38 of the 46 nations represented at Geneva have signed the treaty. In the United States, the Sedition Act of 1918 has been repealed, a wartime measure that restricted free speech and provided for the imprisonment of those who used, quote, disloyal, profane, scurrilous or abusive language, unquote, the act has had little political support since the end of hostilities, except from Mr Wilson's Attorney General, Mitchell Palmer, and other Democrats who wish to extend it into peacetime to prevent radical news sources stirring up unrest among the Negro population. Here's a Japanese sneaking on with the an old second hand man He'll buy your old days from you He will take every sorrow Of the day that is through 
The Japanese sandman can no longer build his house on the sands of the California desert. The state's alien land law has come into effect following its approval by voters in a referendum last month. The law extends the existing prohibition on alien property ownership uh, to prevent aliens from taking out even short-term leases. Supposedly aimed at immigrants from Japan, it will nevertheless affect other Asian communities in California who are ineligible for U.S. citizenship. There's plenty of land available beyond the Earth. Astronomers Francis Pease and John Anderson have made the first measurement ever of a star other than our own sun. By using Albert Mitchelson's stellar inferometer and the 100-inch telescope atop Mount Washington in New Hampshire, Messrs. Pease and Anderson have calculated the size of the red giant Betelgeuse Alpha Orionis. Betelgeuse was found to be 300 times larger than the sun, with a diameter of 240 million miles. The star is 700 light-years distance from Earth. Just two weeks ago, the college football halfback, George Gipp, became Notre Dame's first All-American. It is only three weeks since he dazzled in their game against Northwestern. But George Gipp is now dead of streptococcal pneumonia at the age of 25. On his deathbed, he is said to have urged his coach, Canute Rockney, to tell the boys to go out and win just one for the Gipper. In other sports news, John Boater, the South African rugby union lock who played for the Transvaal and the Springboks, has been killed outside his home at Standerton by a bolt of lightning. He'd have to get under, get out and get under to fix his little machine. He was just dying to cuddle his queen. But every minute when he'd begin it, he'd have to get under, get out and get under. Then he'd get back at the wheel A dozen times they'd start to Hug and kiss and then the darned old engine It would miss and then he'd have to get under Get out and get under And fix up his automobile Actually, you don't have to get out and get under to fix up your Dodge automobile. They're generally quite reliable. 
As a young man, Horace Dodge was an enthusiastic tinkerer. He invented the first dirt-proof ball bearing. And then he and his brother built transmissions for Olds and engines for Henry Ford, but always with the goal of one day building their own Dodge motor vehicle. Their first commercial automobile rolled off the production line in 1917. Less than three years later, Horace's brother John died of the Spanish flu and now Horace Dodge has succumbed to complications thereof at the age of 52. And that's the way of the world, December 1920. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Oh, we have a question from a Kentish man. I don't mean the county of Kent, but a first-week founding member of the Mark Stein Club called Kent, uh, who's not from Kent, but from Roanoke, Virginia. I'm not sure I can reliably say what uh, county Roanoke is in. Anyway, Kent writes, Mr. Stein. Oh, you can call me Mark Kent. We're a, uh, we're a friendly lot around... Uh, uh, this part of the Mark Stein Club. Uh, Kent writes, Mr. Stein, thank you for refusing to swallow the lie that the election was, quote, the most secure in American history. Unlike the entire mainstream media, nearly all elected Republican office holders and apparently the majority of the so-called conservative commentariat. A three-part question, if you don't mind. A, regarding the obvious fraud in certain key states, do you believe there was any electronic vote manipulation or was it entirely good old-fashioned mutual thievery, e.g. fraudulent ballot dumps at 4 a.m.? Uh, well, the distinction you draw shouldn't really exist, Kent. We should just have paper ballots filled in by voters. That's the most secure form of voting, because as your question implies, the more persons and machines and software and algorithms and USB drives that are placed between the X in the box on a piece of paper and the final score, the more opportunities there are for shenanigans. Um, but in the Republic of Shenanistan, which is where we all now live, the correct answer to your question is both. As in Fulton County, boxes of ballots were dumped at the count in the small hours of the morning uh, when most people had left. Those ballots were counted and then electronically manipulated to provide further votes. As you can see in the security footage from Fulton County, the same box of ballots was fed into the machine multiple times. Uh, so in that sense, the idea was that 5,000 fake ballots uh, could deliver 15,000 fake votes. Do you believe there was coordination between the vote fraud efforts in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and or Georgia, or were those each lone wolf operations? That, says Kent, achieved a common purpose. Well, as with the jihad, it's an amalgamated union of lone wolves. The point to bear in mind is that in the Democrat cities in those states, Fraud is a routine feature of elections to one degree or another and has been for many years. So the infrastructure for fraud is already in place. And as I've said, I believe it happened last time, which is why Hillary didn't contest those states, uh, because her vote would have come down when they discovered that 
there were, in fact, fraudulent ballots in 2016. All that happened this time is that they decided to do it on... They decided to do it on an unprecedented scale. It was a plan and to that extent required coordination because all those states did the same thing. They closed down the count at roughly the same point and when almost everyone was sent home, the ballot dumps of the small hours in strange unmarked vans got underway. Are there emails and texts coordinating those actions? No, it's not the sort of thing you would commit to email or text. Uh, Landlines is what you'd use, and even then very sparingly. C. If you believe there was coordination between the fraud efforts in multiple states, do you think that's why Biden and Harris never really campaigned? Their handlers knew victory was assured due to the prearranged shenanigans. No, The reason Joe Biden didn't campaign is that he's a very sick man. He was in the basement because he's not up to campaigning. He's only just come out of the basement and he's already hobbling around in an orthopedic boot from an absurd story involving him coming out of the shower and deciding to chase his dog down what he called the alleyway. Uh, which I assume is an indoor alleyway, because otherwise he'd be running around buck naked, uh, and uh, (laughs) coming out of the shower naked, chasing his dog down an alleyway and trying to grab his tail. That's Joe Biden's version of events. But as I said, he's just come out of the basement and he's already hobbling around in an orthopedic boot. That's why lockdown can never end, because when lockdown ends, he'll have to follow the usual grueling schedule of a president, uh, bilateral talks with world leaders, photo ops to launch your energy plan, uh, 40-car motorgates to dreary Kennedy Center galas, press conferences. Biden would fall apart in full view of the world. As for Kamala, they put her in a metaphorical basement because the more she's on view, the more unlikable she is. It's that simple. So the non-campaign was actually the only way they could effectively campaign. And even then, the non-campaign would not have worked without the big heist. Mark Stein's Last Call. As many of you know, I'm a guest host for Rush Limbaugh on the radio in America and have been for many years. And with no disrespect to any of my colleagues, there has only ever been one Rush guest host truly beloved by the audience. That's Walter Williams, a black man and a free market economist, which is a very rare combination in the United States. Walter died on Tuesday afternoon, just after giving a class at George Mason University and the day after the publication of what would be his last newspaper column. Excellent, as always, on the education system. Walter preferred to guest host on quiet news days so he could give, uh, in effect, a 
a trenchant and often hilarious free market seminar uninterrupted uh, by political pipsqueaks and their transient concerns. One day, uh, Bill Clinton, while Walter was on the air, decided to start bombing Yugoslavia. And uh, Russia's chief of staff, our late friend Kiss. Carson said into Walter's earpiece that all things considered, the launch of a new war really was something you had to mention uh, on air. So Walter announced that NATO was now at war with Yugoslavia and then remarked laconically, ah, there's always something crazy going on in the Balkans. Uh, After which he went right back to what he wanted to talk about. Walter was a libertarian, one of the three most prominent in America, along with Thomas Sowell and John Stossel. Uh, But he understood the limits of uh, the hyper-rationalist worldview. Uh, Around about this time of year, he'd be on air uh, on Rush's show doing jokes about what he'd be getting his wife, Connie, for Christmas. Connie was only ever referred to on air as Mrs. Williams, the lovely Mrs. Williams, uh, and the lovely Mrs. Williams' woeful Christmas gifts were a running joke on Rush for many years. I think the first year he explained the economic rationale for getting her an ironing board, and then it advanced to getting her golf shoes so she wouldn't slip when she was outside in the winter washing his car, etc., etc., This interview is from a decade ago when Walter had just published a lovely memoir called Up From The Projects, and I'd like to play an extended part of it because it's a glimpse of Walter's background and early life and of the unformed man and the influences uh, that made him who he became. Let us go direct to the guest host of guest hosts, Walter E. Williams. A happy New Year to you, Walter. Well, Happy New Year and Merry Christmas to you, Mark. Um, and, and that's right, Merry, Merry, belated, belated Merry uh, Christmas. You grew up in uh, about as poor as poor can get in, in America. In, well, not in the, quite. Well, you in the we you you in the Philadelphia ghetto. Yeah, right. Uh, but 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 uh, just explain to us the difference between projects as we understand the term now and projects back then. Yeah. Well, the the, the actual name of the project was Richard Allen Housing Project in North Philadelphia, and if a matter of fact, in the book, I there's a there's a photograph of the building in which we lived, and if you look at the building, you see no graffiti. Uh, graffiti was unheard of. I, the closest we came to graffiti was drawing hopscotch, uh, you know, taking chalk and drawing hopscotch in the uh, street so we can uh, play hopscotch. <laughs> and and uh, uh, people used to. Uh, there were no bars the window. We did not go to we did not go to sleep with the uh, with the sounds of gunshots uh, in the background. There weren't bars at windows in the hot, humid summer nights. If we behaved ourselves. Uh, my mother would let my sister and I sleep out on the fire escape. And one rather other remarkable thing is that my father, uh, he deserted us uh, when, when I was three, and, and, uh, and a couple of years later my mother finally divorced him, uh, and when my sister was two. But among all the people that we knew, we were, my sister and I, we were the only uh, kids without a mother and a father in the household. Now, right, today, right. Today, it would be exactly the opposite. It would be a rare thing to find a mother-father in the household in the project in which I grew up. Yeah, and, because... And matter of fact, most housing projects around the country. 
Now, now, what's the what's the the reason uh, for for that? Because LB LBJ and the Democratic Party thought they were doing Black Americans a great favor with the Great Society uh, forty five years ago, and it seems to have had uh, certain malign consequences. Oh, yes. at least as far as the Black families concerned. Oh yes, the, the the welfare the welfare state has done to Black Americans what slavery could not have done what harshest Jim Crow laws could not have done, what rank discrimination could not have done, and namely, break the black family. That is, back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, even up until 1940, in most cities you found uh, upwards of 80% of black kids living in two-parent families. Today you'd be hard put to find uh, 20 or 30%. And in some cities, uh, Eighty percent, eighty-five percent of black kids don't uh, uh, don't have uh, uh, two parents, and yeah. even during slavery, many times marriage was not allowed among slaves. But kids, children lived in households with their two biological parents. Yeah, and 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 now, as you say, maybe eighty-five percent don't have any don't have any uh, male head of the household, That's and right. if there is, it's often just a kind of transient boyfriend passing through. That is absolutely uh, right. And and by the way, the the um, the illegitimacy rate among black Americans is around 70 percent. Right. And I'm not a prude, but, you know, if you're born and you find out you don't know who your father is or where he is, uh, that's not a best start on life. But I would say this, Mark, is that it's not a black thing because in Sweden, and that's the mother of welfare states, the illegitimacy rate is 54 percent. Uh, right. And among and, whites and the white Americans, the illegitimacy rate is over 25 percent where it was in the 60s when people start uh, talking about black illegitimacy. Well, it's, it's a basic economic principle. That is, if you tax something, you're going to get less of it. And if you subsidize something, you're going to get surplus of, surpluses of it. And it's just the fact of business that we have been subsidizing slovenly behavior. Now let's let's because uh, I, I said before the break you 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 understand everyone knows you understand macroeconomic no, theory and this <laughs> and this this book applies it to your own life but there are kind of uh, fascinating glimpses of the difference between uh, then and now uh, there was a story uh, in the New York papers a couple of weeks ago about how cab drivers were the, the TSA may not be willing to profile at American airports, but New York cab drivers say they're going to profile because it's life-threatening not to profile. <laughs> you started as a cab driver. That's right. Uh, b- back in the 1950s in Philadelphia, and when you used to, uh, you, you used to get tired in your shift at uh, 2 or 3 in the morning, you'd just pull over and take a nap in, in, uh, in the cab. Nobody would do that in Philadelphia oh, these days. That is right. I would, I would take a nap at a cab stand. You know, it could be two, I worked from 12 to 8 shift at sometimes. Right. And there's nothing doing, so I had to sleep in the cab. And in the hot summer times, the windows would also be open, and I'd get a customer, maybe a tap on the glass, say, driver, can you take me so-and-so? But if anybody did that today, they might be accused of attempting attempted suicide. Right. And what, what, is, what is the reason for that, Walter? Is it, is it the, I mean, when you look, as you say, when you look at the uh, at the project you grew up in, there's no graffiti. It's clean. It's well maintained. It's not crime ridden. What 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 is the reason for it? Well, I I think again, what you know, is just plain economic theory, the cost of various kinds of behavior, our antisocial behavior, has been reduced. That is, 
criminals uh, uh, go free. You know, you know, at one time uh, in the United States, uh, rape was a crime punishable by death. Today, rape, you, know, you can rape a woman and maybe get out in five years, four years, or maybe not even that. So it's a lower cost of, of, of all kinds of criminal activities. And so you expect people to engage in it more. Well, you you started out, uh, as you say, you weren't at the very bottom, but you were, by any conventional understanding, you were poor. Uh, you did you did the kind of jobs. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, Barack Obama never had the need to work as a cabbie uh, on the night shift in in uh, in Philadelphia, and you became uh, a, a professor at, uh, at George Mason. Uh, do we do we still have? Uh, that level of social mobility, or are we getting into the uh, situation uh, of the countries that many of us thought we'd left behind, where you actually have transgenerational, uh, a transgenerational underclass just mired at the bottom? Yeah, well, I, I think one of the things that one of the great things about our country is and makes us unique among all nations, and that is just because you know where a person ended up in life, you cannot be sure about where he started. That is, there's such upward mobility in our country that, uh, that you don't have to start at top. But, you know, and, and, and matter of fact, uh, according to the Forbes 100 richest uh, Americans, all that's new blood. You, you don't find the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Goulds, and it's the Steve Jobs, it's the Bill right. Gates and others who are first-generation, very wealthy people. And yeah, so but- it's a lot of income mobility. It's not like Europe. If you don't start at top in Europe, you're not going to get to the top. Mark Stein in for Rush talking to Walter Williams about his uh, own life. And, and Walter has kind of intersected uh, with key American institutions at, at kind of end, every step along the way. Because you were, you were in the Army, uh, Walter, uh, in, tumultuous, <laughs> in tumultuous times. Uh, yes, in, I was. I was during drafted. the desegregation uh, period. And, uh, That's right. The, I was drafted the... uh, from Philadelphia and sent to Fort Stewart, Georgia, without a very good orientation on the southern way of life. <laughs> so I had some adjustment problems, and uh, yeah. I, and matter of fact, I was just a plain troublemaker while I was in the army. I, and 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 uh, actually, they trumped charges on me. Trumped up charges, Article ninety two, which is failure to obey a direct command. Right. And I was court martial, and I won and- the court martial. Not guilty of all charges and specifications. And I brought ch- charges against the company commander that court martialed me. Uh, for undue hardship on a person subject to his command, and uh, before I could get the charges uh, uh, written out or, or, or processed, they shipped me to Korea. So this is this is like way more. You had way more trouble than any of the "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" guys. Uh, you 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 basically went in there as a as a young hotshot and, and as you say a troublemaker. But you but you came out. I mean, you you've got uh, I think a. You learned a lesson from an uh, f- from an army chaplain that you uh, knew during the oh, uh, yes. Korean that, War. Oh yes, that occurred in Korea. They sent me to uh, this black army chaplain, and uh, because I was still raised, I was raised in hell. Matter of fact, give you an idea when I when I landed in Korea, we landed on LSTs. There was no port like it is right. now, right. and. Uh, and a long line of guys waiting to go through the process. And you had to fill out these personnel, uh, you know, give your age, your next to the can, your religion, and race in there. And under race, I put Caucasian. And <laughs> the chief warrant officer asked me, he said, you made a mistake. I said, no, I didn't. And so I said, I'm Caucasian. 
And so then he asked me, why did I put down Caucasian? Because I said, well, if I put down Negro, I'll put, get the worst job over here. Now, I never changed it. He probably did. But this right. chaplain, he told me, he says, you know, Williams, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And my response to him, I didn't actually say it because he's an officer. I said, that Uncle Tom so-and-so. But actually, it turns out that later on, I witnessed, and, you know, I, I agreed many years later, that he was absolutely right. But the big thing, Mark, is that, that what happened to me, I had a lot of time by myself. I had a job that, and just all by myself because nobody wanted to work with me. And I was 24 years old, and I said to myself, if I don't get started soon, I'm never going to be anything. So my wife and I, we agreed, exchanging letters, as soon as I get out of the Army and we save $700, we're going to move to Los Angeles, and I'm going to go to college. And I got out of the Army July 3rd. I had my job back with the taxicab company July 7th. And July and December 1st, my wife and I, we had saved $900, and we <laughs> hooked up a 4x6 U-Haul trailer to my 1951 Mercury with all of our worldly possessions in it, and it wasn't even full, and we headed off to Los Angeles. Now, now you, you, you bring us back to what we were talking about earlier, in a way, because you have a wonderful line uh, about Mrs. Williams in the book, and Mrs. Williams is a familiar figure uh, until her death, uh, yeah. to millions and millions of listeners to this show who used to love uh, when you would when you would talk uh, about your wife uh, on the show. You have a wonderful phrase there. You say she was a civilizing and humanizing influence in my life. Oh yes, uh, she was. And that is re- that is really, in some sense, the the big purpose of of marriage when it's working is that man man is a crazy beast like you in the army he's a barbarian uh, yeah he's a barbarian and the civilizing figure is is the woman who domesticates him and as in your case uh, uh gets him to to kind of get his life together and uh, pack up and move up and make something of himself mm-hmm. you figured that out at 24 um, thanks uh, in part to your wife, but a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of guys don't don't seem to a lot of twenty four year olds now are still crazy teenagers. Well, well you know, you know, Mark, we, uh, my wife and I, she was very popular and very highly likable, and she's getting invited to parties, and and I got invited because that's the only way they can get her is take me because I was not that agreeable person. <laughs> right. But we would get home at one o'clock at night and two o'clock at night. And and you know what a young man would like to be doing at one and two o'clock at night, and but I'm getting a lecture from her. I'm, she's saying, Walter, do you always have to prove that you're smarter than everybody else? Did you have to say that to the person? Well, blah 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 blah. You could have de- let that go by, and I got, and I started getting uh, lectures to kind of civilize me. <laughs> And, and and as you say, that's that's actually uh, what you need because if you're unlucky, you don't get that at 24 and you figure it out when in, in the ruins of your life when you're 38 or you're 43 and time has passed you by. That's right. So actually that's, that's, that's one of the most uh, important, important things you get. How, how long were you married for? In, uh, uh, we were we, uh, 48 years. And if, we, right. if my wife had lived two more months, we would have been together as a couple for a half a century. That's pretty amazing. And, it's, and it is a kind of tragedy uh, that if you went back to your corner of Philadelphia, it will, it will be increasingly rare to find people who are able to say that. Oh, yes. And, 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 and as you were saying before we went to the break, as you were saying, there, there are opportunities for kids to get out do not exist. 
uh, when when that the opportunities that I had because of things like the minimum wage law, all kinds of regulations and all kinds of labor laws that cut off the bottom rungs of the economic ladder. And right. kids and young people do not have the opportunities to get out that I had. Walter Williams. As we mentioned there, the off-air foil Mrs. Williams, his darling Connie, died in 2007. And after that, for Walter, a little bit of the fun went out of life and of guest hosting too. A truly great man, dead at the age of 84, Walter E. Williams. I am happy he's reunited with Mrs. Williams in the great hereafter where you only need the golf shoes for golf, not to wash your husband's car in winter.
Maybe I can't live to love you as long as I want to. Life isn't long enough, baby, but I can love you as long as I live. Harold Arlen and Ted Kohler, as rendered by, well, where do you start? Benny Goodman, clarinet, Cootie Williams, trumpet, George Old, tenor sax, Count Basie, piano, Charlie Christian, guitar, Artie Bernstein, bass, Harry Yeager, drums, all bringing us almost to the close of today's proceedings. We had a busy weekend at Stein Online, starting with our Clubland Q&A on the lie we are being asked to swallow. We continued my serialization of P.G. Woodhouse's Smith Journalist every evening, as we will tonight. And if you enjoy the jaunty, raggy Jerome Kern theme music that starts each night's episode, well, my Sunday song selection was another piece by Kern, the beautiful ballad, They Didn't Believe Me. Kathy Shadle's movie date was Kurosawa's Ikuru. Kathy is the best and she is going through the worst right now. Please keep her in your prayers and hold her in your hearts. We all love her here and we know you do too. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.